as we are back in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. As we look at this, I want to uh, just remind you that the reason that we are looking at Hebrews in the first place is because of the importance of what is said in this book. It was written so that Christian Jews primarily, although some were perhaps still seeking and still looking, would not turn away from Jesus and go back to the temple. Which leads people in our time, and it's led people throughout history, to kind of say, well, we, we, we're not Jews, we're Gentiles, the temple doesn't exist, so why do we need this book? And, and while it's true that there is no temple, and the temple is not a, a temptation for us, there are other forms of formalized, ritualized religious belief. There are other challenges to the gospel, other, uh, other teachings that take away from the truth of who Jesus is, and what he has accomplished, and what he is doing. The book of Hebrews is such a significant book that it's it's one of four books in the Bible that led the Roman Catholic priest and scholar Martin Luther out of Roman Catholicism into the, the truth of the gospel. The book of Hebrews, the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, and the book of Psalms uh, were where Martin Luther discovered that uh, the authority is not vested in a variety of places. Authority is vested in Scripture alone, that sola scriptura. That salvation is not by grace plus uh, merit, but by grace alone, that sola gratia. That our response to the gospel and to the truth of, of God is not faith plus works, but faith alone, that sola fide. That our salvation is, is brought to us and mediated to us by Jesus alone, not by Jesus and Mary or Jesus and the saints or Jesus and the church. That is uh, solus Christus. And all of this takes place for the glory of God alone so that only God can say, I have done this thing. That is soli Deo Gloria, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. So with that, Hebrews chapter 2 begins by saying, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Drifting away is a problem because of what is said in in Hebrews 2.3, and it's a rhetorical question, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And the answer is we we won't escape. We won't escape. So let's pray and, and look at the passage today. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that as we come to it now, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would quicken us to understand and to grasp what it is that you were doing, what your purpose is in redemption and in the cross and in the work of our Savior. Teach us and feed us on your good word. We thank you for this in your holy name. Amen. Beginning at verse 5, the writer says, For he, this is speaking of God, for God did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere, it's David, by the way, 
and the somewhere is Psalm 8. What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you were concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren." saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. There is more to the cross than us going to heaven when we die. That seems to be the simplistic modern gospel in, uh, in faithful circles, and, uh, and I, I mean no criticism of those who are faithful to the Lord. It's such a battle to hang on to the truth of Scripture and the truth of the gospel that there, there's been attempts to, let's just simplify this, let's just bring this down, let's not get into the details of creation and the flood, let's not get into all of the other stuff, let's, let's just focus on the simplicity of mere Christianity, we go to heaven when we die and that's what it's all about, but it's, it's about more than that, God is doing more than that, we need to understand God's initial plan and that's what is uh, given to us in verses 5 through 8, God did not subject to angels the world to come, that's the world of the future, But he has, in verse 8, put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, there are some scholars who believe that the him and the his here is all speaking of Jesus, but that's not the original intention of the psalm. There is a prophetic sense in which that is true, but it's talking about mankind. What one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? Jesus is the son of man, all capital letters, but Ezekiel was also called the son of man and the son of man stands for mankind as well. And what we need to understand is that in, in the initial working of God, he intended for mankind to be his agent and regent on the earth. I'd like you to turn back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. If you can't find Genesis 1, close your Bible and start going to the right. You'll come across it pretty quick. If you have an electronic Bible, I can't help you. I don't know how to flip those. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So mankind 
is made to rule. It's part of God's design. It's what he created us to do. In verse 28, or in verse 27, God did then create man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Mankind is male and female. The image of God requires male and female for full representation, for a true representation. And then in verse 28, God blessed them, the male and the female, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So verse 26, man is, man is made to rule. In verse 28, man is now commanded to rule. And the man and the woman are commanded to rule. In, verse two, or in chapter 2, rather, if you look at verses 19 and 20, we see out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He took one of the man's ribs. He made Eve. He brought Eve to the man. And in verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So verse 26 of chapter 1, man is made to rule. In verse 28 of chapter 1, man is commanded to rule. And in verses 19 and 20 and 23 of Genesis 2, man actually begins to rule. And he begins to rule by naming things. The, the most basic exercise of authority, I think, is naming something. There's an act of authority in naming Something. If you're not sure if that's true, back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. Then he says in verse 8, God called the expanse heaven. Then we see in verse 10, God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. God saw that it was good. Part of God's rule, his dominance over his creation, was the right of naming what was there? Well, he gave Adam the responsibility to name what is on the earth, in, including the woman. So when we, when we think about Genesis 1.28, and I know I'm bouncing you around a little bit, but you're tracking with me. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it. Man, mankind was to rule over the earth, and that rule had five components to it. Some of those components required the man and the woman both be fruitful and multiply. Requires the man and the woman both. In, in one sense, parenthetical thought here, in one sense, all sin is the same in that all sin is sin, all sin is under the judgment of God, all sin deserves hell. In another sense, sins are treated differently. And there are times when certain sins are, are given a, a greater judgment, a more serious judgment. And certainly the sin of homosexuality deserves a greater judgment because it is a rejection of this original purpose and original command. Those who are homosexuals say to God, we will not be fruitful and multiply. Or if, we'll, if we are, we'll do it on our own terms. 
It's a serious, serious issue. So man is made to rule. Mankind is made to rule. Mankind is commanded to rule. Uh, Mankind begins to rule. And then what happened? Well, sin happened. And because of sin, corruption enters. Sin enters the world. What happens to man's rulership when, when he sins? Well, that sense of domination, that being created to rule, remains in place. But man is no longer an agent of God. He's an enemy of God. Man can no longer rightly uh, rule on the earth as God's regent, as God's king. Because man is at warfare with God. The judgment of God affected both man and, and woman both. I, I'd begun to say that, that those five aspects of this command uh, involve both man and woman, be fruitful and, and multiply. That has to do with the man and the woman together. Fill the earth has to do with both of them together, each of them with their own particular things and responsibilities. Subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the others seems to be more of a a primarily male thing to do because it's pushing outward. And we have to remember, of course, that for, for a woman, having a baby is not the end of the story. Motherhood does not end with birth. Women are not alligators who have a baby and then swim away, which is probably a good thing. As opposed to that, a woman carries the baby in her body and she gives birth to that child and then, and then raises that children. If you want to know who my children are, look at my wife. She has left her mark on them far more than I have. Yeah, besides the fact that you all look like her. Um, the woman's role is, is huge in doing this. Well, with the fall, judgment came, and judgment came to the woman and to the man both. In Genesis chapter 3, to the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Childbirth prior to the fall was not going to be an agonizing event. It would have been a labor event, but it wouldn't have had this greatly multiplied pain how is that possible can't begin to tell you i don't know what god did to uh to the physical bodies of of men and women to cause us to do what we do but something in here multiplies pain in childbirth it's not just physical pain in in the the six thousand years or so of, of human history during the majority of that time the infant mortality rate was between 30 and 40%. That's death between birth and the first birthday, 30 to 40%. It's, it's unreal. And there are places still on the, on the earth in third world countries where these numbers remain the same. And what it does to a woman's heart, to a woman's soul, to a woman's mind, to bring a child into the, into the world and then see it die, at, at birth or, or shortly thereafter it is impossible to, to say. God is going to, he said he's greatly multiplied the pain of this. Maternal maternity uh, or mortality rates rather, the death of a mother in childbirth historically has ranged between 1 and 2%. 
Right now, uh, the worst place on earth to be a pregnant woman is Sierra Leone. 1.3% of women die giving birth. What that means is that if there's a village of 100 women and each of them get pregnant, one of them's going to die. That doesn't sound like a lot until you're in a village of 130 women. So there's a huge cost to pay. And that we see that that judgment, we see that that work of God goes directly to the woman's role in being fruitful and multiplying. The man is affected as well. Verse 17, then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Uh, Just as before the fall, childbirth was not going to be an agonizing experience. Before the fall, growing food was not going to be a battle. God created the earth to yield to man. In fact, what's really interesting here, I, I noticed this, and, and uh, I'll just preach two sermons this morning because this is really fascinating. God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, puts Adam in the garden, and then he says, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. I've made it all for you. Go eat. Now in Genesis 3, he says, oh, but you're going to have to grow food. So I, I think that the idea was in the garden, God says, the food is growing. You're going to move the borders of the garden out. That's your job as you cultivate. But the garden is providing you with the food that you need to do that. But in the aftermath of the fall, all of a sudden, a, a man's work is no longer going and getting the food God has provided and then kicking the boundaries out, a man has devoted his life, his waking hours through the majority of human history to just getting food for that day. Most of the world through most of human history has lived one hailstorm or one plague of locusts away from starvation. And as, as man goes out, now it's not cursed as the garden because of you, but cursed as the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. This is never going to stop. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. So God had had said, mankind is going to, to rule the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. It's, it's there. You're my regent. You're my agent. Now God says the earth itself is going to fight you every step of the way. Women are going to lose children in childbirth and in, and in childhood. Women themselves are going to die giving birth. Men are going to have to fight constantly to survive. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's awesome. I love that. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to humility, or I'm sorry, to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself 
also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. When man sinned, when mankind sinned, when Adam sinned as our head, all of creation was stricken and cursed and judged. And I, I, I don't want to overspeak the scriptures. I don't want to overstate things. And I don't want to anthropomorphize. But I think we could say creation's mad at what we did. Creation is groaning to be rescued from the impact of our sin. So back in, in Hebrews chapter 3. What is man that you remember him? Verse 6, or the son of man that you are concerned about him. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, which I think places man above the angels. And you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things into subjection under his feet. But in subjecting all things, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But we do not yet see all things subjected to him. After 6,000 years, after 4,000 years, when this is written, it still hasn't happened. It didn't happen because of sin. And yet there, there is a wonderful word at the end of verse 8 that gives us hope. And it, it's the little three-letter word, yet. We do not yet see all things subjected to him. It'd be absolutely awful if it said, in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not sub- subject to him, but we don't see everything subject And maybe we never will. Instead, he says, we do not yet see. Which means that there is a time coming when everything will be subject subject to mankind. How does that work? Verse 9. While we do not yet see all things subjected to him, we do see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. See, God brought his son into the world... Not simply so that sinners could go to heaven, but in order to bring about a redemption and a restoration of his purposes and his initial plan. We see incredible humility on the part of the the Son of God. We see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. You know, Jesus had a right to the worship of angels. He had a right to be lifted up and exalted and, and honored. God says in the Old Testament that he values his word above his own name. Jesus is the radiance of God, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He is the heir of all things through whom God made the world. And yet Jesus is made a little lower than the angels. We can't imagine what it would be to go from the enormity of all that God is to being made into a human being, much less a baby. He goes on to say that he was, uh, because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor, and that's, that's awesome, that's wonderful, but the suffering of death. The second person of the Trinity is eternal and unchanging. We saw that in in chapter 1 you lord in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands they will perish but you remain and yet jesus uh, faces death 
The second person of the Trinity is God. He can't die, but the man Christ Jesus could die, and he did die. And he died a horrific death of crucifixion. Didn't die in his sleep. He wasn't hit suddenly and, and, and die in some quick way. And we, we often don't stop to think about this, that, that because Jesus was holy, because he was perfect, because sin had no hold on him and death had no hold on him, he, he couldn't simply wait like we wait for death. Bob Robinson has, has had moments, I know, in the last couple of years of wondering, am I going to die today? Am I going to die this week? There have been some crises in his, in his condition that has probably led family to try and say goodbyes or at least be thinking about that. And, but, the, but think about this too. When the time comes, Bob won't have to do anything because death will take him. But death couldn't take Jesus. And so the scripture says that Jesus yielded up his spirit. He not only faced death, he had to empower death over him. He was still in control and yielded himself to it. It says that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, as he was bringing many sons to glory to perfect the Savior, as he tasted death to bring many sons to glory. The word taste doesn't mean that, that death wasn't real. It was real. He, he really died. His heart stopped. If you'd had an electroencephalograph on his brain, you would have seen no brain activity. There was no blood pumping through his veins. His lungs were no longer taking in air and giving it up. When the soldier came along and took the spear and thrust it into his side and blood and water came out mixed, the the mixture is because the clear serum and blood had separated from the red blood cells because it was no longer being being, being circulated. It's evidence that he was dead. When the soldiers speared him, they took his body down. People, people in, a, in a time, in a culture where when a family member dies, you don't call a mortician, you deal with that person. And so every adult knew what death looked like and what it smelled like and what it felt like, and they knew Jesus was dead. He was dead. It was a taste in the sense that death had no hold over him. Death could not keep him. Death could not bind him down. And he held death in his mouth, if if you will. He held death in his mouth for three days and then spat it back out and took up his life again. He was perfected through sufferings. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, this is God, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, Hebrews 7, 26, that Jesus is a high priest who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted. Hebrews 4 says that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He has no sin. Why does he need to be perfected? Well, he doesn't need to be perfected in the sense of being made sinless, but he needs to be proven to be sinless. God, God didn't say, 
let's see, I've given them this Old Testament sacrificial system. I know I'll send my son and call him a sacrifice so they understand. God said, I'm going to send my son as a sacrifice. I'll give them this sacrificial system so that they understand what that means. Part of that sacrificial system was the examination of a lamb. When you brought an animal to the priest to sacrifice, the priest had to examine that animal to see if it was without a blemish. How was Jesus examined? He was examined through the suffering in his life. And through the suffering in his life, he remained faithful, he remained holy, he remained sinless. The lamb had to be proven holy. It's interesting too, I I don't know that I would want to take this too far, but you remember in Jesus' trial before the the high priest, they couldn't find any evidence against him. They had to find witnesses who would lie. Isn't that a proof of his holiness and his innocence that this man who'd lived out in front of them for three years, when push came to shove, they couldn't find anything actually wrong. They had to invent lies. In, in that, I think the high priest testifies, this is a sinless lamb without blemish. And Jesus sanctifies those who are being sanctified. Verse 11, that means, the word sanctify means to make holy. It means to set apart. Sanctification and justification are different. Jesus justified us by his death. That means that he declared us righteous and he granted us his own righteousness. So when you come before the Lord today, you don't come with your sins, hoping that God will look over your sins. You come dressed in the righteousness of Christ. I know you don't feel that way. I don't feel that way either, but that's how you're seen. That's what Scripture says. Sanctification is this process that that He does throughout our lives as we live in faithfulness of teaching us and growing us and building us. When we get to Hebrews 12, we'll see that God is our Father who disciplines us for holiness. That's sanctification. As He purifies us. So we have Jesus who is holy and sinless and undefiled, dying for and sanctifying and justifying those who are unholy and sinful and corrupt. You can just ponder the humility of the Lord. And what's more, and and this is really the heart of what I see in this passage. He was not ashamed to call us brothers. Verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. He's unashamed. He's not unashamed because of me or you, because I'm shameful and you're shameful. He's not unashamed because we don't give him cause for shame. He's unashamed because his father is our father, because of his grace and his mercy and his love. He's unashamed, I think, because the knowledge of his purpose goes beyond taking me as a, as a measly little sinner and giving me eternal life. 
as he looks at my life and he looks at who I am in the world, as he looks at your life and who you are in the world and what you face and the enemies that you have, the spiritual enemies that you have and the people who attack, and he looks at your sin and he looks at your failure and he looks at the stumbles of your life, he's unashamed because his purpose is to bring you into eternity with him as a king and as a priest. That's what Peter says we are. A kingdom of priests. A holy nation. A people set apart for God. There is something so warming and comforting in this. My salvation and and your salvation is about an eternal plan. It's not about undoing a mistake. Uh, Putting it in parenting terms, God took the long view. Before our kids were ever born, we, you know, we're like all new parents. We didn't know anything. We were just dumber than a bag of mud. But we did have a conviction that we needed to raise our children with a long view. And what I mean by that is, is we are raising our children to one day become adult peers of us. And, and so when they did things as children, there were times that we disciplined and we corrected. But there are other times that we looked at that thing and we said, but this, she, she's never done this before. I'm not pointing at you particularly, but I could. She's never done this kind of thing before. She's sorry that she did it. She understands it wasn't the right thing to do. We don't need to stomp on her for this. Let's watch and see if it becomes a pattern. If it starts to become a pattern, we'll deal with it. If it's a one-off, let's just talk about the lesson and move on. It's hard. we've, We've talked with a lot of parents it's hard for, for people to bring teenagers into adulthood. It's really, really hard. God granted us utter peace through our, our, our children's teenage years. We simply did not have the, the, the drama. It's not because we were smart. It's not because we were so great. I don't know exactly what we did. But I think it was related to that idea of having a long view. God has a long view of your life. He has a long view of of who you are and when he saved you and what he's doing to sanctify you and to correct you and what he's going to do in your life until the moment that you stop in this life and you open your eyes to see him. And he's not looking at that, that moment of sin or that moment of sin or this act and judging you on, on the basis of that. And you judge yourself on that because that's what we do. We either try to excuse all sin instead of repenting of it or we we crucify ourselves for every sin rather than leaving it to Jesus to, to bear. God looks at us and, and he says, I, I'm going to deal with this in her life now. 
And I'm going to take her through six months or seven months or a year or two years as, as we deal with this issue. And all of these other issues over here, we're not going to sweat those right now. We're going to come back to those in time. And I believe because his purpose is restoring mankind to a rightful rule on earth through the man Christ Jesus, who is his king and his regent on earth. And he is raising us up to be a kingdom of priests and of rulers. That for each one of us, he's very patient. He's very kind. He trains us as we go. If he ever faced any one of us with all of our sin in one moment, we, we would die from the burden. And he's kind. He, he doesn't do that. Where we fail, Jesus succeeds. We are sinners. There's no question about that. We still hang on to sin in our flesh. The power of sin has been broken. The penalty of sin has been paid for. The presence of sin remains in our physical bodies, and it will until the day that we die. That's simply the reality of who we are. But where we have failed, Jesus has succeeded. And so Jesus, because his father is your father, is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. I'm ashamed of myself a lot of the time. He never is. One of Satan's greatest temptations is to urge us to find peace elsewhere or through other means. Jesus can't do it all through his cross. Uh, We need a temple. We need uh, other people to approve of us. And he says, no. Remain faithful. Remain simple in that faith. If you're tempted to look for more, if you're tempted to find another Savior, if you're tempted to believe that Jesus is not done at all, if you're tempted to believe that God's approval of you or God's love of you or affirmation of you is dependent upon your activity, I invite you to just leave that junk where it is and walk away from it. You have been made accepted as a Christian in the Beloved. God can't love you more. He can't give more than he's already given in Jesus. He can't fill you with more than he's already filled you with by his spirit. He can't give you more truth in this life than you have in his scripture. He can't give you a better promise than I will never cast you out. He can't give you a better promise than you're in my hand and nobody can take you out of my hand. Satan wants you to be afraid. The world wants you to be proud. God wants you to be at peace with him and know that because of what Jesus has done, you have a right standing with him if your faith is in him. And that you have no reason to be proud of that. It's a pure gift. Father, we thank you for the love that you have shown us and that you have given to us that you have granted to us. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are not ashamed of your people. In fact, the only place where you ever speak about being ashamed or denying is is regarding those who have made a claim to be Christians but then have stopped believing and have denied you. 
Lord, none of us are in a position to be proud or arrogant. None of us have received anything that we were not given. None of us have achieved anything in your kingdom that was not the work of your spirit through the power of your word. We are simply beneficiaries of your grace and of your gift. And you call for us in response to that to trust you and to keep our trust in you and to turn away from temptations to doubt you. And we ask that you would continue to teach us and train us to trust you no matter what. We look forward to the day when that initial plan that you had that mankind would rule in your place on the earth will be fulfilled as Jesus himself takes the throne and as we rule with him. And until that day, Lord, we know that you're holding us close. Would you remind us of that more often and grant us your peace? We thank you for all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We are dismissed.